Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I had the opportunity to connect with Christina Haas, who's a premier health coach and licensed dietitian and nutritionist with a functional and integrative approach. One of the reasons why I wanted to bring her on board was to talk about the impact of nutrigenomics, which is the byproduct of nutrition and gene expression. We dove deep into her backstory, which included things like living all over the world and her history of veganism and how going to a nutrient-dense whole foods primal slash paleo diet helped heal her body, examples of genetic tendencies and low penetrance gene variants, the role of nutritional choices, including the use of ethanol or alcohol and seed oils, the impact of lifestyle choices, as well as testing. She provided some incredible broad-based recommendations, as well as ways to work with individuals that are trained in this very unique form of genetics, superimposing on nutrition. Today, I am delighted to welcome my friend, Christina Hess. And before we dive into your backstory, we have a very special announcement to make about Keto Symposium, uh, for which I will be an honored guest to be speaking at this event along with other friends of mine, like the amazing Ben Azadi. But Christina, tell us a little bit about this event, why it's so special, and the fact it's in New York City, which I think most, if not all of us, would love an excuse to come visit the city because it's been a while since I was last there. Absolutely. The city in September is an absolutely glorious time to come to New York not too hot. Uh, it's, it's just beautiful weather. And of course, there's so much to do. And now that things are back open in New York, Broadway, there's so many other things to do in addition to coming to the conference. So yeah, it's the very first low-carb conference on sort of ketogenic lifestyle and fasting. And yeah, lots of experts, including you. So excited. I love going to conferences. I mean, I just, I don't know. I love learning. I think I just consider myself a lifelong learner. So it's been fun to put this together. This live in-person conference is three years in the making. So this plan began in 2019. The first one was originally supposed to be in 2020 in Greenwich, Connecticut, and was canceled. So then last year, it was a virtual conference. And so this year, finally, we are in person. Yay. Well, and I think everyone, including people who speak on stages like myself, like you, we're just so grateful to be able to have the opportunity to connect with people again. And so if you're in the tri-state area, you definitely want to check this out. And what I love is that it's a one-day event. So it makes it you know, a little bit easier for some yeah. people kind of struggle to be able it's a to one and a half day. Event. And a half. So, okay. yeah. So we actually kick off Friday evening with a couple of keynotes and then, and we're going to have a reception and you can register and get your swag and all that fun stuff. And then it's an all day event Saturday. Yeah. So it's still, you, there's, you can still enjoy the city and, and do lots of other fun things too. Absolutely. And we'll make sure in the replay and in our show notes that we'll include the discount codes that people can use. But, you know, before I forget, you have such an interesting backstory. We were talking about it before we started recording. And I always feel that our influences of our parents and where we grow up and our relationships with food can really be instrumental in creating an environment of, you know, whether we have a healthy relationship with food or an unhealthy relationship with food. So I think let's start from the beginning. Tell us a little bit about (laughs) where you grew up and how you grew up and the influences of your family and how your kind of eating trajectory, because I'm wanting you to talk about your period of your life when you were a vegan, which I think is really relevant (laughs) um, and how that evolved into where you are today. Yeah. So I grew up overseas. My dad worked in in banking and and my mom was a diplomat. And so we were overseas for most of my childhood and we moved back 
to the States uh, when I was just shy of 13. And so living abroad, you know, really we ate very just whatever was local, fresh, very healthy foods. We lived in South America for a period of time. In Venezuela, it was the 80s, you know, oil, you know, this big business. And then we moved to Milan, Italy, and where, yeah, I lived on pasta and, but really fresh, really fresh, fresh, fresh food. And we would come back to the States in the summertime and I would stay with my grandparents for a couple of months. And that's where I got all these, you know, processed, yummy treats, you know, the Doritos and Entenmann's coffee cake and Klondike bars for dessert. And I just have such fond memories. <laughs> all those American, the cereal. Oh, my goodness. So, but we didn't have any of that when we were abroad ever. So, it was when we'd come back to the States that we would have these indulgences. And so I, you know, I was interested in nutrition at a very young age, simply because, you know, my mom sort of battled with her relationship with food and and talked about it a lot. And so I had a different reaction. I think statistically, a lot of kids end up with also disordered eating if they have a parent with that issue. And I actually went I don't know. I had my own version of disordered eating, which was sort of orthorexia, I think, in college. But but really, it was I was so committed to I'm going to take care of my body because the other version, which I just saw sort of as this punishment, like being on some kind of terrible diet and suffering, and it was all about the quick fix it seemed, you know, or I want to eat all the cookies and then purge them. And I wasn't down for that. So I read a lot of nutrition books, you know, whatever was hot at the time. And so I ended up kind of going with the trends of the time. And so I was into the, you know, the low fat, no fat period. And I just, I would scoop out my bagels and eat my bananas and (laughs) wouldn't touch any fat. And really things changed had, but I did experiment with veganism, which actually evolved into raw veganism. Yes. I went fully raw and I lasted four months, four months. And I did not have a social life. I would take sometimes 48 hours to prepare either dehydrated foods or I juice all kinds of things and then make these soup. Everything was very elaborate And what ended up happening was I had some pretty severe nutritional deficiencies and I ended up fracturing bones and it really didn't click with me. So I first broke my collarbone. I'm a skier. I grew up ski racing and falling. I don't know how many times, but let's say like a lot. And this is pre-helmet days. That's real skiing. I grew up in that time frame too. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So I fell on my head a lot, you know, and I never broke any bones, but I was doing this raw vegan thing and I fell. And so I thought, well, this is coincidence, right? You know, the first bone that I broke, it was coincidence. But then, so I recovered from that and I started training for a marathon and I was, you know, I was putting in miles and I ended up fracturing the femoral neck of, you know, in my hip, you know, where that bone, yes. And it was just fully almost cracked almost to the end. And that is when it really, really clicked that this vegan lifestyle is really damaging my bone health. So later, not to jump too far ahead, but once I learned about genetics and testing genes, I realized I don't have any of the predispositions to be a plant-based person. So I was not surprised much later and I could have saved myself decades of headache had I known about this whole, you know, genetic piece to like, what should I eat? And this would be better for me. So I did have this vegan period and then ended up finding my way to CrossFit to recover. After all my injuries, I found my way to CrossFit and I went fully paleo and that changed my whole life. And I really love the whole paleo approach and philosophy to just real food and hunter gatherer, you know, just again, that genetic piece, you know, where 
looking at what we're supposed to eat. And some people have adapted to more modern food and some people haven't. And my body responded amazingly well. You know, I've always been a person that's had to really be mindful of her weight and that really didn't realize it, but that was the beginning of understanding that, you know, hitting my protein targets and being low carb was really good for me. I always find people's journeys because at the time it might not have made sense that you became a vegan, but now looking back retrospectively, that allowed you to course correct and end up exactly where you were destined to be. And I think it's such a beautiful story. And I think for so many of us, I always say like, I thought I ate such a (laughs) healthy diet because I was telling my patients everything I learned in my medical training. And it wasn't until I had a child with life-threatening food allergies that I started to question everything. And then that actually sent me down a rabbit hole of going gluten-free and then ultimately lower carb and now carb cycling and fasting. And so it makes sense now, but I know at the time it did not. And and I think for many people, if they've been, if they're a recovered vegan, um, I have a family member, it's taken her years to kind of course correct going back to eating meat, but she feels so much better. And I think for a lot of people, it's okay to have experimentation with different types of nutritional dogma. But I think we always have to remain open-minded to really leaning into what our bodies intrinsically need. And I love that you've kind of married, you know, your trajectory of your life with genetics and nutrition. And I think the easiest way to start the conversation is to actually define what nutrigenomics is. Then it'll make sense to people once they hear it. I mean, I, I think a lot of people don't necessarily recognize what it is, but it makes sense. Like once you say it, it's like, oh, okay, the interplay of epigenetics and nutrition and how that can turn genes on and off. But what this is actually what brought you into this nutrigenomics and probably the need for having individuals who were savvy being able to take the research and combine it with nutritional recommendations and bioindividuality is probably being a teacher because that's where you started your career career was probably a, a kind of a normal extension of what you were interested in. Absolutely. So I, I say I was as a teacher before I became clinical nutritionist. And so I do have the heart of a teacher and I love to educate the people that I, I work with and really spend time so that they understand the mechanisms of how their bodies work. So nutrigenomics is this marriage between nutrition and genomics. And genetics kind of falls into three buckets, right? So we, you know, everyone's heard of 23andMe or Ancestry.com, and that is really looking at your, where did you come from, right? Like, are you mostly European or Asian or African? And so that's one bucket of genetics. Then there's this whole other bucket of genetics, which is all about diseases. And that bucket tends to look at one gene that's a real anomaly and how to treat this gene. And there is no amount of food or anti-inflammatory protocol that's going to treat that disease, really. So that kind of genetics is not what we're talking about here. So nutrigenomics is really uh, looking at these more, not these fixed genes, but the more malleable genes where you have all the power in the world to influence their expression. And so what's really neat is that in this field, you can look at sort of a family, a group of genes that will pertain to a particular area or system in your body, say, you know, detoxification or, you know, genes that pertain to fitness, right? Um, I'm actually pretty injury prone. And I didn't know that I have some variants on collagen genes that if you looked at that, uh, there are genes that can tell you if you would do better with more endurance training or sort of with, you know, better with lifting. And, you know, I didn't understand any of that until I got into this, but it makes perfect sense. You know, if you give two people a marathon plan, let's say, you know, and one person does great with it and the other person gets injured, you know, that's all based on your genetics, And, you know, someone like Usain Bolt, you know, he has a very particular set of genes that gene, your genes are just potential. They're not sort of, oh, you know, you're doomed to X, Y, Z. It's just potential. But if you don't 
you know, A, have the potential or B, use that potential, it's not going to express. So I find it fascinating. I think it's really the future of our profession to really understand you know, this body of science, it's still so new. And, you know, I'm constantly evolving with how I learn to translate these things and interpret them because it's so important to look at the whole person, right? Just because you do have what we say, you know, spelling changes in your genes, that's kind of all they are. It's, you know, how we make words and then sentences and we make meaning out of our language. That's all we're doing with looking at gene translation is we now have four letters and you might have some changes on those letters. And are you doomed? No. And they might not even be expressing at the moment based on how you're living. So I find it all fascinating, but it is important to really kind of look at the whole person and what's going on and what is their family history and What do they like to eat? How do they manage stress? All of those pieces, you know, are so important. Well, and I think it's an important distinction. So as an example, when I was kind of preparing for this, the recognition as someone that was in graduate school and undergrad during the time of, you know, the human genome project, I remember, you know, my faculty members that were, especially in oncology research, were really excited about this. So I'm really dating myself, but it's relevant So when we're looking at these genetics, you know, looking at differentiating between high penetrance, so like a BRCA gene, you know, genetics that make people more susceptible to certain developing certain types of cancers versus things like MTHFR, which if anyone's familiar with that, I actually have two copies, you know, that's considered to be, correct me if I'm wrong, low penetrance because it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have all these problems. And what's interesting is even though I myself, I think I'm pretty well-versed in the very basics related to this. I have many family members, not surprisingly, who have, they're both, they're all homozygous for this particular gene, the MTHFR. And probably 10 years ago, they started all taking methylfolate and methylated vitamins. and Which is all you need. (laughs) Right. And so what's interesting is you could take 10 of us and most of us were taking methylated vitamins. And then one person got sick from taking the vitamins. And so ended up going to the emergency room. And so it really just speaks to the fact that there's no one size fits all philosophy. Like we all have differing lifestyle choices that can influence whether or not these gene genes are activated or not. And your work really focuses in on the low penetrance. So the things that are not, totally. they're not, it's not like correlation means causation. Like you can totally. have a gene and if it doesn't get turned on, you may not even have any issues, but really relevant. And something that we were talking about before is things like recognizable MTHFR is one I think a lot of people are familiarized with. I think it's gotten too much attention though, and too much importance. You know, a lot of these genes, this people are looking at them in isolation and freaking out. Do you think it's sensationalized by the media or do you think it's people who are trying to better understand what's going on and they want to fix, like, haven't we conditioned our patients that a pill is going to fix whatever ails them. And people think a supplement's going to fix everything. And I always remind people like you really have to lean into the lifestyle piece. Like it's still, there's no quick fix. Like you really do no. have to do the work. I love to just snap my fingers and make it easy, but the work is still the work. The work is still the work. I guess you really do have to look at so much more than just one. It's low hanging fruit to do that and panic. You know, we've talked even about APOE and there's so much attention around APOE and oh my gosh, and you're going to get Alzheimer's if you have, if you, now it is true that it has been identified that there's a higher likelihood, especially in the reason for, you know, you get two copies, right? You get some from your, you know, one parent and the other parent. So with the four, four, if you have that, or even the three, four, yes, the you it's a higher risk, right? It's risk, but that's still potential. Mm-hmm. And those are just older variants. And because they're older, what that means is it conferred benefits way back when, and they haven't changed. They haven't adapted to this newer, more modernized food that we're eating. 
And so people who might have a 3-4-4-4 and are now eating a lot of grains, a lot of starch, and a lot of sugar, and have a lot of stress, and it and are drinking a lot of alcohol, they just they haven't adapted. And it could potentially, again, we have to stress that potential, but also, again, looking at maybe some other SNPs would be interesting to see if they have adap- adaptations elsewhere, you know. Well- and it's interesting because, you know, my own experiences with the MTHFR, which I kind of got to a point where I just wanted to stop worrying about it because yeah. I think if I weren't doing all the right things for me, that it might've expressed or created other issues. And so I think this is really important to kind of identify what are the things people do in their personal lives that can impact gene expression? Because there are probably people listening saying, this sounds like alphabet soup. I don't know how to make it relevant. Let's make it really relevant so that people understand, like when we talk about doing the work, it is the most important work. It really, really is. I talk a lot about circadian rhythms. I talk a lot about circadian biology. A lot of this is around feeding and fasting windows, but in terms of relevance, what are the aspects of lifestyle that you feel like make the largest net impact on whether or not that gene turns on or off? Well, it's a little bit reversed. In that, so Yale Jaffe talks about this. She's a nutrigenomics expert. um, And she talks about there's the insight, right? There's the, okay, now you have all this data. You have all this knowledge about yourself. And then there's action. Now what do I do with it? You know, now that I know about all these genes, now, now what can I do? to your point, to sort of optimize my right lifestyle. What is my right eating window? And that's where the genes kind of give you the the data, the information. Oh, you know what? You actually do just fine on a wider window. This other person has, you know, is glucose intolerant and not so insulin sensitive with these particular variants they have. They need to stop eating early. I've seen it. Of course, you've seen it too in your practice where you have people doing maybe a traditional 12 to 8 intermittent fasting window, but you move them to a 9 to 5 and things start changing for them. And so all of that is based on their genetics. And one of the most interesting family of we really call them transcription factors. So they're like switches are the, is that PPAR alpha. It's, it's the whole PPAR family actually, because it's alpha and it's gamma and, and there's Delta. There's, there's all these, you know, Greek <laughs> letters that go with them, but it's PPAR and it has a lot to do with your utilization of fat. So for people who have difficulty with their PPAR, well, fasting doesn't feel great to them. And so they might need to do that, you know, traditional three meals a day and just, you know, start their day with some protein. And then other people just have no issues. They go right, you know, they can do all this extended fasting and they feel amazing and they have all the energy in the world. Again, this is, it's genetics. It's really, really fascinating. And with low carb, there's also a lot of nuances, right? Because in the whole low carb space, we can find people who are like, oh, it's higher protein. Oh, it's higher fat. Oh, you know, can you tolerate more carb cycling or not? Which carbs are we talking about? Should you be doing more saturated fats? Can you have dairy? Should you not have dairy? And again, it's genetics. So a lot of those questions really can get answered with a test from a good company, of course. Well, I know 23andMe because I've actually run that. And then this is before they made some changes. And then we, I ran the data through Gene Genie, which I'm not even sure if that's even out there anymore. And even then, with all the training I have, I remember saying like, it looks like alphabet soup. So I'm sure yes. for people listening, they're like, I don't know what any of this represents. So, and that's why I think it is important to take your data to a qualified professional to interpret it for you and sit down with you and ask you about your actual lifestyle, you know, because you want to put it into context 
What is the family history? What, you know, how do you live? Do you sleep? Do you have problems sleeping? Just because you have variants with melatonin and clock, it's, you know, maybe you don't have any sleep issues or yes, I can validate that for you. I have, you know, it's right here in your genes. And so here, maybe you do need to take some melatonin. Maybe you do need to take some magnesium. It is important to sit down with someone and really, and have them look at this, not so that you're not looking at just the alphabets because you aren't just a bunch of letters. You're a human being with a whole bunch of things going on in your world. And, and you want to look at it in context. And then additionally, which I think is really important, is if you can add other data to that too, like, are you wearing a continuous glucose monitor? Example, Cynthia, I do tend to use low carb ketogenic protocols for a lot of the people that come and find me because they're, you know, it's stubborn weight loss, or maybe, you know, they're recovering from cancer and things like that. So it is a protocol I tend to use. Those are the people that typically are finding me, but I've had people where it doesn't work. And then we run their genetic profiles and boy, they really shouldn't be eating red meat and saturated fat. And they, you know, they don't have issues with the grains and it changes the dietary approach. Well, and as I'm listening to you, I'm curious because obviously after our discussion, I'm going to reach out to you and say, Hey, I'd love to get your professional opinion because I'll give everyone an example. I lean carnivore ish. I do cycle my carbs, but I feel best eating meat and I'm able to, you know, maintain being healthy and healthy life stage, even though I'm now middle-aged, but what's interesting is, you know, I'm a family of, we're a family of four. And so half my family loves fatty meat and the other half doesn't. And I can tell you if I eat a large bolus of animal based fat, like let's say I go to a restaurant and I have duck fat fries, I will be sick and I have a healthy gallbladder. That's not the issue. But for me, I do best with lean protein Mm -hmm. and plant-based fats Whereas half my family does really well with like, they have a ribeye, I have a filet. They have a piece of salmon. Generally I'll have like a leaner piece of fish. And it's almost to the point where my older son is the same way. There's something about the way that fat feels on our tongue that is so unappealing. And I'm sure there's probably a genetic piece to all of this. And so I find it fascinating. Anyway, I just wanted to interject that, that clearly there are genetic influences that will gravitate us towards certain types of foods and away from others. A hundred percent. And it sounds like you just kind of like I did, you found it by default and then you could later validate the information with looking at your gene snips, but wouldn't it be nice for some of you out there listening to save yourself the time and the experimentation with you know, looking at this first and saying, well, this would really be more ideal for me and then take it or leave it. Of course, there are going to be times when you're not eating that way, but wouldn't it be nice to know what is best for you? Yeah. And I think this whole optimization and personalization, I think that's where I see a lot of like medicine going in that direction. The acknowledgement that I'll give you another example. I'm now in menopause. And so, you know, the kind of one size fits all that once women hit a certain age, everyone needs the same hormone. Well, me going on HRT, I gained 10 pounds almost within two weeks. And this speaks to a lot of things that weren't properly balanced, even though I was doing all these right things. And so I always remind people it's, it's like cooking. It's like trying to find that perfect balance for each one of us. And it's why when I work with women, that's, we never start with hormones first. It's always all the foundational work because even then you can still run into these kinds of quandaries. And so I would imagine when you're working with women, you mentioned weight loss resistance, that seems to be a huge pain point for women in perimenopause and menopause in particular. And so, you know, in your, you know, kind of clinical experience, what are some of the big things? Cause I know, you know, I think about FTO, you know, if you look at the research and certain things, so there isn't this genetic propensity. So what are some of the more common alphabet soup, if you will, combinations that you will see. Sometimes it'll lead you to believe like, it's not surprising this woman is experiencing this because maybe her body doesn't use fat properly. Maybe her, you know, genetics are set up that she's going to run like a lower basal metabolic rate than someone else. What are some of the more common things you will see that will increase the likelihood of being weight loss resistant? So 
And keep in mind, again, the science is still evolving. So we, you're looking at a lot of different kinds, types of studies. So, but here's what I can tell you with the information that I have to date. Coffee is a big point that people argue over. Okay. And that is very easily determined with genotype. So there's a fast metabolizer of coffee. It's alphabet soup of AA and the detoxification pathway. So liver detoxification and clearance of caffeine. So are you clearing it quickly or not quickly? And then the CC genotype is a slow metabolizer of caffeine. And studies have shown that those slow metabolizers of caffeine, if they consume, if they're heavily consuming it, they're more likely to have a heart attack. But people may know this already about themselves if they're having the heart palpitations, if they feel anxiety. But then there's the next layer. You want to also look at COMT, which also has to do with metabolism of hormones, dopamine, estrogen, and with COMT, which also gets a lot of attention that can also drive anxiety or not, depending on how quickly you're clearing things out. But yeah, detoxification is super, super interesting. You know, you have, you know, a centenarian who can live to be a hundred and has smoked, you know, pack of cigarettes a day. And then you have another person who never smoked and got and gets lung cancer. So the GST genes, which are also in that detoxification pathway, have been shown to respond very well to sulforaphane, to broccoli sprouts. And so that seems to be a really interesting nutrient. And that's really what nutrigenomics is it's all about, is how to impact, you know, your expression again, you know, by introducing the right nutrients. And then there's also the reverse too, is is if you challenge the system with certain things, do your genes respond? There's some new research on AMY. One and two, that's amylase. It's the genes coding for enzymes that help you break down starch. So with people who have multiple copies of that, that's shown that they can tolerate starch better if you have fewer copies than, you know, less so. And that makes sense because you're able to break it down better. So, um, yeah, it's... It's really interesting stuff. No, and it's, I'm thinking of my 16 year old who is a lacrosse and football player and is six feet tall and still growing. And one of his favorite things in the world to eat is a big bowl of like bison or ground meat on top of a massive amount of white rice. Mm -hmm. And so my husband and I jokingly talk about the fact we go through rice in our house, not because we eat it but because he eats so much of it, but I would yeah. imagine he probably has the am. I'm sure he has multiple copies because he's super lean. Yes. He's also 16. So he has time on yeah, his side. He does. <laughs> he's <laughs> in that different. anabolic phase. Yes. Right? The definitely the building phase. So, you know, you mentioned sulforaphane. And so, uh, you know, I talk a lot about broccoli sprouts and cruciferous vegetables. What are some of the other, you know, things when you're looking at carbohydrate threshold, you mentioned the amylase, uh, when you're looking at fats and protein, what are some of the kind of broad base? Cause I know we're so not giving personal recommendations. No. And, and again, them. now we're talking about isolated gene SNPs <laughs> that are low penetrance, right? Mm-hmm. But TCF7 L2 is another one that's really kind of that linked, highly linked to diabetes, you know, type two diabetes and will also be another one of those that may be impacted by a high grain diet. I know that was true for me. So I have variants on TCF7 L2 and I ended up, you know, pre-diabetic. It's, you know, right turning 40 and insulin resistance just turned on despite my CrossFit, despite triathlon training. And I at the time had taken a, a job as a nutrition director at a plant-based company and was had totally gone off my paleo, strict paleo diet and was eating all their food. And my just weight just ballooned there in two years. And then I'm doing that, but I was thinking it's okay. I'm doing all this triathlon training, right? And not a single pound would budge. So then it was, huh, 
okay, let's test it, right? If when in doubt, always do some testing, be your own detective. And then I was, you know, in a conference sitting, listening, and I and I listened to uh, Professor Thomas Seafried, and he just absolutely just blew my mind talking about cancer and ketones and ketogenic metabolic therapy. And I said, okay, I don't know if this could be hard or not, but <laughs> here we go. And it was amazing to just drop you know, 15 pounds in six weeks and feel that, you know, keto high and just happy and clarity and not be obsessing about food. I had never been able to go like two hours without eating prior to this. I mean, fasting? No, I would have looked at you like you had 10 heads. I mean, forget about it. And I haven't eaten today. I'm. It's in the afternoon. I did have a cup of black coffee and I feel great. I feel fine. That was never a reality for me That's in the past. Yeah. How powerful for you. It's so great. It's freeing. It's very yeah. freeing. Well, and that's one of the things about, you know, the therapeutic use of intermittent fasting that I think is so phenomenal because I have a group of women right now that are going through one of my programs and they're on day like 35 of 45. And the amount of women that have said, I had no idea how much freedom I now have that mm -hmm. I can go about my day, not fixated on when my next meal is not craving food that I shouldn't be eating. I've changed my relationship with alcohol, which is definitely something I want to talk about uh, with you. The more I talk about this and the more that I learn and do research on alcohol, I think that unfortunately, you know, the past years have been very hard on everyone. Let me be mm -hmm. really clear that many of us have developed healthier habits. Some of us have not, but I do hear from many, many women that, you know, their alcohol consumption went up at compensatory wise, you know, some people suddenly had little people at home 24 seven, and that was stressful. And, you know, I was a little bit more fortunate that my kids were older, a little more independent, but let's talk about alcohol because yeah. this is something that I find fascinating. And I grew up the byproduct of an alcoholic parent. And so mm -hmm my relationship with alcohol has always been a cautious one because I saw up close and personal, some of the things that happened with this parent. I mean, obviously there's no judgment in anything I'm saying. I just think that we need to destigmatize talking about it because it's very triggering. I find every time I do a post on this, I either get, you know, people on one extreme or the other. And I always say, there's no judgment in what I'm saying. I'm here to educate and inspire you to examine your relationship if you have one. And so what have you found in your work and your research about alcohol and how it can impact this, you know, epigenetic signaling and turning on and off of genes? So alcohol completely blocks fat oxidation. And that's just a fancy way of saying you are not burning fat when you're drinking alcohol. It is the equivalent of trying to drive your car with the e-brake up. You're just like getting nowhere when, at least for weight loss, okay? And that is something that a lot of people are either trying to recomposition their body or lose a significant amount of weight and have goals. And unfortunately, it is there is so much social pressure around alcohol and it's in our faces every single day as adults. I personally never liked to drink. So I, because I didn't tolerate it well and I would get violently sick. I don't detoxify alcohol or metabolize alcohol well. And so it's been very easy for me to regulate that behavior. But there are, so if we're just talking straight genetics, yes, there are people, at least in the APOE research, that have the newer alleles, the two, and if you're a 3-3, three, three, which is the most common, they're more adapted to, say, have, reap the maybe cardiovascular benefit of a glass of wine or something. But I really... I don't know if I buy into that because alcohol is so inflammatory. And I can't think of an organ system that benefits from alcohol consumption. It's not good for your fertility. It's not good for your cognition. It's, it's not good for your digestive tract. It's just all around just not great. It might be a little bit fun to get take the edge off if you've had a stressful day, but that's where I just invite people to find other coping mechanisms. And maybe they need to get out for a walk or take a nice hot bath or learn to meditate or call a friend. And, you know, 
speaking of social life, it's like learn to be around your friends and really connect because all those social interactions are about the people that you're with, not about the food you're eating or the drinks that you're consuming. That's just an excuse to then just, oh, we're, I'm so excited to go to this restaurant so I can eat this food. No, it's about who are you going to eat with, really? I think that's an important point. And I think for a lot of women in particular, you know, when I'm working with women and they're weight loss resistant, one of the first conversations we have is what's your relationship with alcohol? Because when you start talking about how your body prioritizes processing alcohol, because it is a toxin first before everything else, it makes complete sense that alcohol blocks fat oxidation. And let me be clear what this means. This means that your body is going to store fat. This means that if you're struggling with weight loss resistance, this may make it worse. And the inflammation piece is pretty significant. You know, I lived in a city for a long period of time and there was a very prevalent mommy drinking culture. In fact, I was part of a mom's group Mm -hmm. and it was evident to me, you know, the meetings were always had during the week. And because I worked as an NP, I've always taken my sleep pretty seriously And I used to always say, you know, if I'm dealing with an emergency in the hospital, I don't want to be dealing with a hangover. Like that would not be a good combination as a healthcare professional. And so I was sometimes shocked at how much alcohol consumption went on during the week, because you kept thinking this is weekday, what goes on on the weekend, you know, when people really blow off steam. And so I went to a high school reunion a few years ago, and a lot of women were talking very openly about how they were weight loss resistant. They were frustrated and you know, alcohol for me is oftentimes the very first thing I'll suggest to people. Maybe, you know, we need to reduce the amount of consumption, see how you feel, how your sleep goes, how your, you know, weight loss. And so for a lot of people, it's alcohol that will drive some pretty significant inflammation, you know, acute on top of chronic inflammation. And so it's an easy fruit to pick. It's an easy thing to say, let's pull this out. Let's eliminate it for a month and see how you feel. And more often than not, people feel so much better but it's such a socially accepted habit that it's, you know, and like you said, that we forget that when we get together with loved ones, it's really about the connection. It's really about investing in those relationships. It's really about relationship building. And I'm starting to see more people in kind of the keto space that don't drink. You know, I I initially felt a little uncomfortable, you know, when I went to some events and then found out I was one of many people that are not drinkers. And so that to me was very validating. I was like, okay, these are other, you know, health conscientious people. And it's kind of nice to know, I don't have to explain myself. Like that's typically the situation. I mean, I have to explain why I don't drink alcohol and again, no judgment, but (laughs) so for your listeners, think about this alcohol goes in, like it goes in like a sugar but then acts like a fat. Mm -hmm. So it leaves, it's going through your liver. It's leaving behind fatty deposits in your liver and leading to that cirrhosis or that fatty liver that you absolutely do not want. Yeah. Metabolic health is wealth and fatty liver is definitely a byproduct of nutritional choices. And that includes alcohol and yes. processed carbs. And that was a conversation. If you have elevated triglycerides and a low HDL, and you know, elevated fasting insulin and glucose and blood pressure, guess what? You need to re-examine your relationship with alcohol. In fact, I'm doing a talk yeah. in July and my talk is called metabolic health is wealth. And, you know, there's too much focus on financial wealth. And I remind people you're going to get the biggest returns and how well you take care of, of your health for sure. Absolutely. Because then you can just keep, you can keep working or doing, you know, live in your life. Yes, absolutely. Do you have any thoughts on seed oils? Oh yes. Well, let me tell you one, (laughs) one thing. So, you know, when people say, oh, but it's so good for your heart. It's interesting. The French cycling team who compete in the Tour de France are known for having some wine with lunch, but guess how much they have one ounce. Yeah. It's one ounce. So imagine taking a shot glass and pouring out one glass, one ounce of wine and then putting that in your glass. It's what, a sip or two? I mean, and that's just not what, you know, people can have entire bottles of wine. And then furthermore, they say, okay, 
because I work with a lot of, you know, uh, middle-aged women as well, right? I'm 48 myself and that all of what you're talking about is, has begun. And they're saying, well, but, you know, in my 20s, I was this weight and I was this, you know, this way. And I said, yeah, but you also weren't drinking yeah. the same way. You were definitely not even drinking this much in college. Um, you're not consuming a bottle of wine every single night. In college, you would have been puking over the toilet. Mm-hmm. And you're also much more active and you had a lot less stress. And, you you know, you hadn't had kids, you all kinds of things. And the hormones were in your favor. <laughs> yeah. Now we're in reverse puberty. It's very different. Yes, totally. Okay. Seed oils. Woo. Well, I just love what Ben Azadi says about this, which he got from someone else, which is that, you know, uh, seed oils are more toxic than smoking and will kill you faster than smoking. So, you know, when I heard that, because I knew they were bad, they're rancid, they oxidize in your body, they damage the lipid layer of your cells. But to hear that, that's, that's like really tangible, right? That that is going to shorten your life. And I'm not here to live forever, but I'm here to, to really age gracefully and really not just have lifespan, but have health span. Mm-hmm. I want to add life to my years. So, and I don't want my body breaking down on me. And it seems like seed oils are just the fastest way to make your body deteriorate, fastest way to get wrinkles, just fastest way to, to create cancer in your body. So yeah, do not consume canola, corn, soybean, you know, sunflower seed. And by the way, oat milk, you guys, oat milk, it's mostly sunflower seed oil. That mm. is not a healthy plant-based alternative. Really, I was surprised. I was in North Carolina recently. I found, I was looking, I was so curious. I was looking at the oat milk and I saw a brand that doesn't have sunflower seed. I thought, well, that's good for the oat milk lovers if they were drinking this (laughs) brand. (laughs) I do not eat grains myself, but I also don't drink milk. So I'll use almonds or I love macadamia nut milk. That's my new favorite. I'm obsessed with macadamia nuts to the point where it's, like I was saying, it's like I get up in the morning and I I think about how can I consume an appropriate portion of macadamia nuts? And I I think it's interesting. I think many people are not eating dairy and and that's not per se a a bad thing. I do eat, Um, I do eat a little bit of dairy. I don't tolerate it. So I think there's a natural inclination that people are looking for alternatives and I remind them like the brand Malk, M-A-L-K, mm. they make, you know, clean nut milks. I try to limit the amount of nuts I eat because I tend to be more oxalate sensitive. And ironically enough, over the weekend, we had a people at her house and someone brought some crackers. And so she was like, oh, these are gluten-free crackers. And I was wondering later why my stomach was bothering me. And I actually said to my husband, when I called to find out what kind of crackers they were, cause I was like, something's off. Well, they were an almond flour cracker and guess what they mm-hmm. had in them seed oils. And so yeah. I said, I don't know if it was the almonds plus the seed oils, but it, it was enough. Could be that, both. Yeah. yeah. I said, so it's like a double whammy. And I think for each one of us, it's, you know, finding healthier options. Like I tend to do coconut milk. I do much better with that, but just, you know, read food labels. That's a big thing. I think you can <sighs> avoid seed oils if you are making your own food and reading food labels. Those totally. two things alone can really limit your exposure to seed oils. I think there are just too many almond flour based items in the low carb space that are getting consumed and causing inflammation and weight loss resistance Mm -hmm. as well. I think I made that mistake myself. It's like, oh, this is, you know, this is a nice keto treat. And it's, you're not doing yourself any services by having a lot of that. No, I agree. And so for the benefit of listeners, what are some of the like key lifestyle changes you like, again, broad-based, what are some of the key areas you'd like your patients to focus on? I would imagine I probably know some of these very well myself, but I thought, you know, before we start talking a little bit about testing, I would love for you to touch on some of the kind of high points that you think are really helpful for people to understand. So one of the things that I say is good for almost everybody is stopping eating by 7 PM, whether you're, you know, seriously glucose intolerant in the evening or not, it really just benefits your digestive tract to be done three to four hours before bed. And then I love the work of Dr. Panda Mm -hmm. and his fasting work. And so, 
yeah, stop eating on the earlier side, everybody. That's just really good because you are just as soon as the sun goes down, you, you know, your systems are shutting down, getting ready for sleep. Even if you're a super night owl and you go to bed at two. Uh, and I get that question too, but can I just eat until, you know, 11 PM if I go to bed at two? It's like, no, don't because your metabolism is not working on full speed at that hour. You, your body's getting ready to slow down. Another thing that I have just about everybody do, and this is really more for pH and blood sugar regulation is to wake up, have a big glass of water with a fresh lemon squeezed into it and a couple capfuls of apple cider vinegar. And they're welcome to maybe sweeten it with a few drops of stevia, or they can add some electrolyte powder to that. But that concoction, I call it the morning cocktail. It Studies have shown it boosts your metabolic rate to, to just consume plain water even by 23% first thing in the morning. Second, the apple cider vinegar is going to help just regulate your blood sugar. It's great for your stomach acid. And then lemon and apple cider vinegar are, you know, just really alkalizing and people can get very, very acidic. They're just really that pH balance gets a bit out of whack, especially if they tend to go more carnivore and they're not eating as many vegetables and they're not having fruits. So plant foods are alkalizing and um, not the grains though. <laughs> grains are not alkaline. With stress causes acid in the body as well. And sleep, sleep is so important, right, Cynthia? It was just one hour of sleep deprivation makes you insulin resistant for the whole next day. I also recommend people walk every single day, you know, whether you like to do a soul cycle or a CrossFit or whatever, whatever sport thing you'd like to do. Walking though, we were designed to walk. So walking is, is good for all of us. Just be in motion and get out for a 45 minute walk, get some fresh air, get some vitamin D, clear your head. That's when I like to listen to podcasts. Yep. So that's my podcast time. No, it's interesting. I uh, was saying to someone the other day that it used to be just about that hour in the gym, whatever it was lifting, or I was doing like a tough conditioning class, but now I focus on you know, strength training, of course, but also flexibility work. And then day to day, I walk anywhere from 10 to 15,000 steps a day. Love it. And, you know, not to mention the benefit of being more insulin sensitive because, you know, it's just important to be physically active. You know, I had surgery on my hip at the beginning of May. And so for me, a, a lot of what I've been doing the last five weeks is a lot of standing because it's more comfortable than sitting. And so what that's really taught me is I was like, oh my gosh, I set up like a little mini office in my kitchen because we have a massive island. And I was like, I actually don't mind being on my computer and just standing. And so I spend most of my day standing when that's I'm great. working as opposed to sitting when I podcast, because I feel like it allows me to just be very focused. Now for the benefit of listeners, because they may not be familiar with some of the testing that you, you've been kind of alluding to. Okay. What are some of the more common tests that you're utilizing with your clients? Obviously, we'll include links. So if people want to work directly with you, but I know, you know, oats yeah. testing and some of the genetic testing, what are I some do. Of the things that you really It's funny. I have, I even have some of the kits right here. I'm in my office. So yeah. So this is, this is a urine test and I like to do organic acid testing. What is that? It's a test of your metabolism, if you will, um, the byproducts of your metabolism, the metabolites that are excreted out of your urine. So whether it's your, you know, serotonin, break down your dopamine and sort of the ratio there, the byproducts of even the bacteria and the yeast in the gut, the Krebs cycle, the beta oxidation cycle, all the Don't byproducts of that. <laughs> I'm sure you have some nerdy past. people listening <laughs> out there. Uh, so it's just all those byproducts of different aspects of your metabolism. And so that paints a really interesting picture, but it's a snapshot of the moment, right? Genetic testing is genetic testing. You do it, it's a one and done. You do it once. I use a test called the nutrition genome. And there are many good tests out there three by four is an excellent company, but yeah, genetic testing you do once. And it's really fun to look at that with an organic acids test. Cause that's really metabolomics, like a totally different omics area. 
And you could, let's say you have digestive issues, you could also look at that in conjunction with your microbiome. I do a test with Excella that tests your microbiome. Um, you can do stool testing. And then, of course, blood work. You know, if you're, say, insulin resistant, you want to be looking at fasting insulin and A1C and uh, C-peptide, maybe some other uh, interesting markers there and basic blood work, of course. But those are my top favorites. There's a lot you can do. I do heavy metals, you know, hair testing. I love that too. I got into mold and mycotoxin testing in the past I would say three years because I had some tough cases, people with really tough skin issues. They were very itchy. They would break out in hives. And so we'd start, of course, start with food, anti-inflammatory diet. Um, with one person, we had to go down to like three different foods that she could eat and then, and then started to try reintroduce things. But interestingly, with molds and mycotoxins, which are so present in food. And we're not talking about black molds. We're talking about all these, you know, so many thousands of species, right? Of different molds that are in our world. It could be in the coffee that you're drinking. It could be uh, if you are eating bean, you know, stored foods, beans, corn, grains, these dried foods, they, they get moldy. Um, melons are very, a very moldy fruit. Peanuts, super moldy. So molds is, if you are a tough, tough case, <laughs> if, you, if you have turned over every stone and you are supremely fatigued and you have pain all over your body or you're very, very itchy, I would encourage you to do a mold and mycotoxin test. I was shocked to go through this mold and mycotoxin conference led by Great Plains Lab, where one of the presenters talked about his dog. And the dog was like on its deathbed, it seemed. And he had the presence of mind to run a, a urine test on his own dog. And the dog was testing super high for molds and turned out it was the kibble, right? Kibble, even if it's grain-free kibble, is stored dried food. And stored dried food is moldy. I worked with a woman who just, you know, she thought it was her thyroid. She had her thyroid medication dialed in. You know, she lost 25 pounds doing low carb. That was great, but she was so fatigued. She couldn't work out. And she has these sort of like almost Olympian kids. We did her genetics. She has all the Olympian genes. I'm like, you should be working out. Your body's going to respond. And she said, I just don't have the energy. And, and finally, I said, you know, let's do a mold and mycotoxin test on you. And yep off the charts. And then she had her home tested. She lives on, she borders some wetlands and, you know, we're in New England and it's, it's very humid here. And uh, her home just, it wasn't black mold, but it was, yeah, she tests, she had an expert come in. She started running some dehumidifiers and things, and that really helped her a lot with her energy. And, but yeah, mold's an interesting, whole fascinating topic that yeah. people can specialize in. Yeah, it's really interesting. I interviewed Dr. Aaron Hartman, who's a recognized like mycotoxin expert. And he talked a lot about mold and how 25% of the population is more genetically susceptible to mold. I happen to be one of them. And then the interrelationship with chronic inflammatory response syndrome. And so it's like this massive bucket. It's not just the mold. It's like all these other things that you just really become much more sensitive to. And I think this is just the tip of the iceberg. Like there's so much that's there. And I happen to live in a very, very humid Southern city. And I didn't believe it. You know, we had lived in Washington DC for almost 20 years. And I was like, it's two and a half hours South. How much more humid could it be? Well, it is <laughs> very humid. And here they don't have a lot of basements. We actually have crawl spaces. And so one of the fun uh, things we get to do this summer is encapsulate our crawl space because we don't want the humidity to be coming up into the floor. And uh, anyway, it's a whole separate, massively, ridiculously expensive under, but ultimately one thing that we need to do for everyone's safety. Now, I want to be respectful of your time. So let's talk a little bit again about keto symposium, and then let my listeners know how to connect with you if they want to work with you, if they want to do this specific kind of testing, how to reach out to you. 
Wonderful. So Keto Symposium is taking place in Manhattan, September 23rd and 24th. The website is ketosymposium.com and tickets are on sale now. And we have an amazing lineup of speakers. Right now we're, we're running a promotion for which Cynthia can put the code up. It's Keto 10 for 10% off the tickets. The space only fits 200 people and 88 people have registered already uh, from the prior years that we didn't have it. So we're really looking at 115 seats uh, approximately. So um, the space is limited, guys. So take advantage if you want to come sign up soon. And then if you want to get in touch with me, go to theketonutritionist.com. If you want to order the nutrition genome, you can go into the shop and order it there and then book a consultation with me through my website. Awesome. Well, obviously go get your tickets. It's in a great city. My husband and I will be going. I'm super excited to be able to see you again, as well as many of our colleagues and peers. And I will be taking advantage of having Christina take a look at my epigenetics so that she can help me fine tune what I'm already doing. But thank you again for your time. It's always a pleasure to connect It's been you. wonderful to be on your show. Thank you so much, Cynthia. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. 